Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, welcome to New Books in Science Fiction. I'm Rob Wolf, a writer, podcaster, and your host. Today, we're going to talk about something that anyone who's ever read or been even passingly interested in science fiction has heard about, and that's the Nebula Awards. Today, I'm talking to Julie Cherneda, the editor of this year's Nebula Award Anthology. It's an annual collection that's been published since 1966, and it's a great way to get an overview of some of the best current science fiction. Julie herself is a science fiction and fantasy author. She has written numerous novels, including one that's coming out this month, To Guard Against the Dark, which is the final book in the Clan Chronicles. And she's written short stories, and she's edited several anthologies. Julie, welcome to the show. Hi, Rob. Thanks for having me. I would love to find out a little bit more about the Nebula Awards. Ever since I was a kid, I was born just before 1966. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, my whole life I've always heard about them. It's always been a mark of distinguished author. But maybe you could explain what they are, how the, the various literature and the various categories are selected, and, and then we can actually talk about this year's collection. Absolutely. be my pleasure. The uh, Nebula Awards is the one that's awarded by basically science fiction and fantasy writers to each other, as opposed to the Hugos, which are voted on by anyone who attends a, uh, the Hugo or signs up for that, which is basically um, a fan award in, in many ways because readers vote for it. But in the Nebula Awards showcase, it's uh, meant to uh, sort of, we have to nominate the works, we, we all get to read them, we, we supposedly pick the best from among what we see. And when I say we, I mean the science fiction and fantasy writers of America. And although it says America, it's an international organization simply because science fiction and fantasy is, of course, all over the place. To become a member, you need to be a published author and published in the sense of uh, there's the criteria on the website, but when I was first joined it, you had to have sold a book to a major publisher, and I did uh, 20 years ago, so I could now nominate for the Nebulas, and I could be perhaps nominated for one. So how many people actually are voting members? I have no idea. What a good question. Um, <laughs> my understanding is it's around 400, uh, give or take. Is it a bit like the Oscars? Do the publishers uh, lobby in any way? Are they sending every member all the books that they are hoping will be considered? That kind of thing? There was a time when you used to receive books, not so much for consideration for the Nebula nomination, but once a book was shortlisted, then publishers would perhaps send a copy or you could ask for one. In the recent times, though, it's been much more uh, uh, accessible because basically what happens is publishers just put the work in uh, electronic form at the CIFWA site and it's available to all of us. So all the work is available as a download. So there's no reason we can't read it all. There's no reason why it's all not 
presented evenly, which has helped a great deal in the participation. Tell me about the uh, the Nebula Awards Showcase, the book that comes out every year. I'll explain a little bit, having read this year's collection, that for the shorter forms, like the best short story, and uh, particularly, you have the you have every story that was nominated. But for some yeah. of the others, like uh, best novella, you have just the winner or best novelette. And then for the best novel, you have excerpts from the nominees and excerpts from, in fact, the winner. Obviously, that's where your role comes in as an editor, making those decisions. But I wonder how how the book has evolved over the years. Has it always been that way with excerpts? No, no, it's interesting. Every editor gets to put their stamp on it. When I was uh, approached to do this by CIFWA, I I had no idea. I looked for a blueprint to do with. They said, no, there's no blueprint. You can see what others have done, but it's up to you what to include. And in certain years, it's been all the novellas, which meant there was no room for, for example, the poetry. We have a strict word count. I mean, the book is being published and and at a certain size and shape and time span. So we can't go over that word count. So within those limits, we put in what we feel would be most representative. And it has always been me. uh, I think I I believe I'm the first one to put in novel excerpts, except for all of the novels nominated. Uh, And for me as a reader, I hate to say it, it's the novels that I tend to go out then and buy. Uh, short stories and whatever I don't find as easy to get hold of. So I think, well, if I find a novel, I'm going to go for it. So I really wanted to to showcase the novels as well. So I chose, the the short stories are easy. I mean, they don't take up much room. And I also wanted to include the poetry, the Rising Awards and the Dwarf uh, Star Awards, because that's important too. I mean, it's, it's usually in there and the year it was out, they were, they were not happy. (laughs) And I don't blame them. I don't blame them whatsoever. And the poetry is a wonderful touch to have in, and I'm glad to have it there. As you were going through this year's collection, what were your observations? I mean, what did you discover about the state of science fiction today based on all these wonderful stories and books that were nominated this year? Well, so much diversity uh, of setting and, and, and of storytelling and style. I really enjoyed that. That's one of the things, uh, as an editor myself, when I do my anthologies, I, you want that. You don't want cookie-cutter stories and cookie-cutter approaches. You want something new and fresh and uh, a different way of looking at things. And certainly Binti, which was the uh, the best, well, it's gone on to win almost everything, <laughs> uh, by Nanetti Okorafor, one for best novella. And her setting and her characters, everything was so rich and different. And even, um, oh goodness, there were so many in here that made me feel that way. I don't really read horror as, as a rule, but the best short story, Hungry Daughters of Starving Mothers by Alyssa Wong, it's a an urban horror, but it's told in such a way that you just can't stop reading it. And afterwards, you just can't stop thinking about it. So wonderful, wonderful skill, wonderful uh, breadth of work. Uh, I, I really did enjoy it. In all the major categories, well, I don't want to say some categories are more major than others, but 
women triumphed in in the novel, novella, novelette, Naomi Novik for Uprooted, the novel published by Del Rey, and as you said, Nenedi Akorafor, you know, one uh, for Binti, the novella, and a Sarah Pinsky for Our Lady of the Open Road, and Alyssa Wong for the short story. So I don't know. I haven't gone back and looked. I mean, is that is that a first that it's all women or or not? Oh yeah. Oh, it's definitely a first, and it's a it's a sweep actually. <laughs> it was quite quite amazing, and, and I don't particularly feel that there was uh, because we're voting based on what we're reading, and there's enough of us to sort of uh, stop it being you know you vote for you guys and you vote for you guys. It's, I felt it was just. A, a swelling of quality and a swelling of more people doing it and awareness that, that we want to see these new stories coming out that just led to this. And certainly the nominations were spread all across the board. But again, even in the nominations, there was a lot of women in here and, and female writers, and uh, that was cool. I enjoyed seeing that. And of course, the grandmaster, T.J. Cherry, uh, another female, and myself. So, I mean, it's just like a, I guess it's a fun party. <laughs> yeah, really, really delightful. Did you look back at the 1966 collection? How many women were, had even been nominated, if any, in 1966? Yeah, and you know, the, tr- the trick, too, is to know who's writing under a pseudonym and who's doing, doing this or that. Um, we certainly had a lot of women win Best Novel and win Best Short Story. I mean, there's been women all the way through. I mean, I'm, I'm seeing, I'm just glancing at the list. At the back of the book is the full list. And you see Vonda McIntyre, you see Catherine Azaro, uh, Octavia Butler, Connie Willis. It's been pretty, pretty uh, even-handed, certainly as I go through the 90s. You get a little bit further back, not quite so even. No, no, there's Ursula Le Guin. So right. we've but been, that first uh, year, I do there. see, yeah, in 65, it was all men. Yeah, yeah. I think the first one, you time you see a woman's name in, uh, 68, where you get uh, Anne McCaffrey and, and you get uh, Kate Wilhelm both winning. Yeah, and then Ursula Le Guin, The, the Left Hand of Darkness in 69. Yep. And that's why Kate Wilhelm is actually, uh, they renamed uh, the Solstice Award uh, after her this year. Uh, and it was presented, it's for, you know, sort of changing the genre, making such a huge pers- contribution that it changed it for everybody. And that went to uh, Sir Terry Pratchett this year, uh, which I thought was very, very uh, meaningful. And there's oh, just an absolutely stunning essay. Did you read uh, Michelle Segarra's essay on Terry Pratchett? No, I didn't. That's actually good, because now I can tell you, Rob, when you finish talking to me, please go read that, okay. because it's not what you might think. It's not at all dry. It's not at all about him. It's all about the reader experience, and uh, it's very moving. That essay is called I Have Read Them All Now, Michelle Segarra. Yes. She made me cry. She still makes me cry. It's wonderful. Because <laughs> it's, it's about the passion for the work. All through. I mean, we, we, you sit here by yourself, you know, as a writer. You know, a lot of it's alone. A lot of it's quiet. And if you get those moments of, of upwelling emotion, of, of true, powerful writing, you know they matter. You know those words count. And it's really good to get a chance to, to, to showcase them. One thing that struck me about the collection this year, and it, it just reminds me of something I've always known, but it seemed to hit me more powerfully as I was reading both the winners and, and nominees, that I think sometimes people discount the literary quality of all kinds of genre fiction. Oh, my, 
maybe especially science fiction because of the word science, you know, they think, oh, technology (laughs) or something. And you read these stories and although there is, you can see why it's called science fiction, sometimes it feels as if it just has its toe in the future or it's sort of postulating something slightly different or speculative. But it's, you know, about people's psychological growth or development or their worldview and and very beautiful and very beautifully told. Oh, they are. I mean, it's the days when I think you could sell a story uh, based on simply it being a cool idea are long gone. Readers are more sophisticated. There's more people writing, as you say, with that lyrical tone or, or paying attention to their characters more. Uh, that's changed a lot of things. I know when I first started reading science fiction, I, that was the one problem I had with it. And one reason I started writing my own was I felt there wasn't much in the way of character. There wasn't, if you wanted really beautiful language, you seemed to have to go to fantasy, which I also love, don't get me wrong. But today, it's, the quality is, is across the board. It's just wonderful what you see. Even though, you know, some of the world, you know, some of the settings were maybe a little dark, there was an optimism Mm -hmm. in a lot of these stories. I wouldn't say that for hungry daughters of starving mothers, maybe, but but some of these other stories are quite poignant in their bringing people together, increasing understanding. It's not dystopic, even if the setting might be a little bit grim, uh, like Sarah Pinsker's story, the best novelette, Our Lady of the Open Road. Mm-hmm. where the premise, and I don't want to misstate, but is that this band that's on the road, this woman and her fellow traveler bandmates are dedicated to live performances when most of the industry has gone to hologram. And so uh, live performances are really not making them money. They're dumpster diving for food. And that too, even though it's sort of a grim and dark world, you're inspired by the end. It's uplifting, I think. There's a, many of these stories are, are about personal choices and personal, you know, just, just trying to be better than, than the rest, just trying to set yourself, in a, move yourself forward, I suppose, look for the best part of things. I love, one of my personal favorites is Today I Am Paul, and it's about a caregiving robot, and you wouldn't think that there could be any possible warmth or, or comfort in reading about uh, you know, caregiving in a senior's home that's provided by a robot, but the the insights into the human uh, condition, into what makes us human, into how we care for our aging and our dying is profound. It's a profound story, and it, it actually makes you feel a lot better about yourself when you finish it. At least I think it does. Yeah, absolutely. And what's interesting, too, is I think that at least a couple of the stories, uh, like Today I Am Paul by uh, Martin Schumacher, portrays the artificial intelligence as compassionate and, you know, the kind of artificial intelligence you'd like to have around. I'd like to have an android like that (laughs) to take care of me. And, And the same is true in Damage, another nominee, short story nominee by David Levine, where the consciousness it belongs to a spacecraft that's been cobbled together from scraps. Mm-hmm. And that and that also shows a moral spine that perhaps mm-hmm. it's humans that it's taken care of don't share. That's for sure. Although I have to say there's a couple of light moments in the book. And uh, one of my favorites is uh, 100 Reasons to Have Sex with an Alien. It's the Rising Award winner for Best Long Poem last year. Right. <laughs> It's a wonderful thing. It's just so much fun. Yeah, the title says it all, for sure. 
it, well, it really does, although you have to really, you know, by the time you get to, to 50, you're kind of giggling yourself silly. But uh, wonderful, too. shows a lot. Uh, I'd also like to mention the uh, one of the things that hadn't been done before was putting out any information about the Bradbury Award winner uh, for Outstanding Drama- Dramatic Presentation. And I always felt that was a lot because I love movies. This is a category I always care a lot about myself. So I've, I'm fortunate that I'm uh, a good friend of mine who works for uh, Space the Imagination Station in Canada, and he wrote an essay about Mad Max Fury Road, and he knew the people involved, and he had some interesting stories and insights of behind the scenes, and I was really happy to be able to tuck that in. So that's one of the perks of being the editor, you can do that sort of thing. Right, so, that was, so Mark Asquith wrote an essay about... Mad Max Fury Road, which won for the... It's now the Ray Bradbury Award, quite appropriately, for Outstanding Dramatic Presentation. So it goes to uh, to a film, or uh, I believe it can also go to a short, uh, something like a Doctor Who episode type of thing, but in this, it usually goes to a movie. But uh, he, he, was, he was able to put some perspective on just how hard it was to get that movie together and what was involved and how they, they crafted it, which I, I don't know. I just love to be able to add some insights like that, even though the space is kind of limited, so to get that in there. Absolutely. And did you want to say anything about C.J. Cherry, who won the... Oh, I sure do. <laughs> Grand Master, the Damon Knight Grand Master <laughs> Award. What was interesting for me was C.J. Cherry, clearly, you know, I've I said it in the book, I've dedicated the book to her and all the rest. Uh, I, one, my favorite author of, yeah, of all time, and uh, I, I'm totally a fangirl when we meet. She, she's very kind and talks to me, and I just sort of stare at her, you know. With, uh, but when I was given the opportunity to do this, the first thing I noticed was I could dedicate it to anyone I wanted. So I thought, this is my chance. I'll dedicate it to CJ. So I'm working along, and then the results come in, and she's the grandmaster, and I'm going, even better. So I was able to, to work with her a bit on it and to put in uh, nice excerpts from my two of her favorite series that uh, she's done. And it was a great experience, but also... This is the other thing that we that the Nebula Awards does is every year it reminds you careers are not just right now. They build over time. They're people who are fundamentally significant both as to other authors and to the readers. Right, right. So where, where do you see science fiction headed? I mean, it seems to be thriving, but uh, what's, your, what's, what's your sense of the pulse of the, of the work that's going on? It's exciting. It's going every direction. Uh, I'm also impressed with, uh, I'm not sure if it's going to be into the nebulous next year, but uh, I believe you can, uh, game writing is now, uh, writing for video games is now being getting, getting the attention that uh, it's been missing because you write amazing plots, these things, and stories and dialogue. I don't know if that'll be in the Nebula Awards anytime soon, but I could see that happening because there's so many platforms on which you can tell these stories. Uh, the other thing I would like to see is even more attention being paid to the Andre Norton Award, which Fran Wilde won for Uprooted. Um, it's... Uh, it's Andre Norton was a, a an author, grandmaster, who, uh, if you're not familiar with her work, was writing for years, and most of us writing now read her stuff first. And she did things like have gate stories, and she did things like invent multi dimensions, and she had fantasy and science fiction. 
but accessible to any age. And to have the Young Adult Award named after her, I think is really cool. And I'd like to see more attention paid to the winners. So tell me about your own writing. What's been going on? I mean, you've been editing, you have anthologies, and at the same time, you just finished uh, the Clan Chronicles series. Guard Against the Dark, the final book uh, in the Clan Chronicles, is now out. Uh, yeah, it came out uh, actually a week ago today, which is exciting. Well, interestingly enough, at least from my point of view, it came out 20 years ago to the day that my first book came out, A Thousand Words for Stranger and from Daw. And that book not only started my career, but it also turned out to be the start of the Clan Chronicles series, much as I didn't expect that at the time. So nine books, 1.6 million words later, 20 years later, I'm finishing it. And I, I love finishing things. I do, I'm not a, an open-ended type of writer. I like to have a nice... I like to leave possibilities and open to the imagination, but I, I do like to get to a good something ending. So it's, it feels good to have done that. And and just for listeners, we are recording this on um, October 17th, actually. So just for reference, when it came out, I guess that was October 10th <laughs> when it came out. And yeah. when, since it's 20 years in the making, at what in what decade did you know how it would end? Is it is it something you've always known? <laughs> you've always had the trajectory in your mind? It's a fair question. Uh, 2003, so that decade. Uh, I, I, I wrote the first three. It's, it's actually three trilogies. So I finished the first three. And at that point, I'd already contracted and planned out a prequel trilogy and what I've just finished, which is the finale of it all. So I, I kind of did a Lucas where you do the middle and then you do the beginning and the end, like as in Star Wars. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I was very yeah, very sympathetic. I wrote other things in between, but uh, I did want to get back to this and uh, finish it up and, and, and have a lot of fun with it, which I think I did as well. Surely, though, your ideas must have changed over time. I mean, even if you had a, had the big picture outline, did you find that you had worked yourself into a corner at any point and said, oh, no, that decision I made 16 years ago, now I have to do this when I now feel like doing that? some details I wish as a young one I could talk to my younger self and say you know don't just throw in swear words if you haven't built a religion but in the, the bigger sense no uh, because I, I started off with the trilogy tells the story of the main two characters the first one I wrote ignoring the bigger science fiction story that I was trying to tell about the species so I went back in after having put those down, and I was telling a bigger story, and I was folding the other events inside it. So I really had very great cosmic control <laughs> over what was happening and what I thought was going to happen. And then to finish with the, the final trilogy was, I had all this done, I had all this behind me, and guess as they like, I don't think readers have have any idea where I was going to take them. So... I'm happy with that too, because it's not a shocker, I think it, well, maybe it is, but I feel it's an inevitable ending, and it's an inevitable path that the species took, and I've answered the questions I had about them. So in, 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 to answer your question, uh, I'm not sort of one of those writers who lets things get out of hand. I'm, I'm pretty much in charge. But the, the world changes around you, though. One of the things that did happen, of course, was I wrote you know, nine other books and, in between. So those were far more influenced by by current events. I mean, the Clan Chronicles is set in a far future. It's, a, it's basically like a space opera-esque setting. 
So I could, there wasn't a whole lot changing now that was going to affect that. Uh, Species Imperative is a trilogy I wrote in the mid, like 2004-ish. That was being affected by current biology and, and the readings I was doing at the time and trying to, to guess ahead 300 years. So in that case, yes, I was very much paying attention to events. And a matter of fact, I had a very sad event. It was uh, as I was, I'd sent in the middle book and only within days, uh, they had the terrible tsunami in the, in the uh, Southern Hemisphere. And I thought, oh, I've had a, a, something similar in my book, and this is terrible. I should, you know, rewrite this part. And my editor convinced me it was okay. It would not look like I've been derivative. It would just be something that happens. And when my book came out, it was different, and it was later. But it's just at the time, sometimes you're too close to the reality of the world. Right, exactly, exactly. Well, I, I always, I mean, I'm, I am curious to see how in a couple of years the election of Donald Trump is, because it's such an anomaly in so many ways, it surprises. I mean, it's it's still hard to get, I think, people's minds around, but it's surely going to have a ripple effect and things like people like yourself who maybe started a, a trilogy or a series, you know, a couple of years ago, and then your mind blows open. Yeah, a fair number of people already working on material, material that, and, and, and it's not as if, Science fiction hasn't dealt with the rise of an unexpected uh, leader in politics before this. Uh, we're usually pretty pretty good at that saying, what would happen if it, this would be ridiculous? What if it happened? And, and, and going with it, seeing where it was. And uh, I believe Rob Sawyer has a, a, his latest book is actually pretty, pretty much bang on. So I think what's going to happen, though, quite frankly, is people are going to want something else. They're going to want something that reminds them of why we like science fiction in the first place and fantasy. The way it invites us to participate, it makes us curious, and it delivers on the wonder that's out there. Well, right. I wondered, I mean, it could go either way. Either you're sort of inspired by it or you react against it, and maybe making something less outrageous is the way to go to, to you know in reaction and counter as a countervailing force to what feels real life is always so much weirder than we can make up <laughs> exactly exactly so maybe people might crave less weird i don't know i'm curious to see what what comes of it it's true i mean one of the things i find in my novels is that i, I my background is biology and, and the, the weirdest stuff i put in is all real I don't need to make this up. And I'm quite sure with the political situation, it's much the same feeling right now. <laughs> oh, interesting. And tell me a little bit about your anthologies. What's on the horizon there? Well, thank you. Yes, I'm, I'm actually in the midst of the selection process for Tales from Plexus. And what that is, is it's set in my initial trilogy, my very first book, A Thousand Words for Stranger. Uh, in, in there, there's a, basically a traveling shopping mall called Plexus, and it's a station that, that travels, and it's, it's a sort of a hub of all kinds of commerce and dark dealings and hilarious encounters. I've opened that up to readers with uh, Dawes Blessing, and we're putting out an anthology of stories by anyone who is interested, and I've got a wonderful mix of things. Uh, I'm just having trouble trying to pick and choose, but to have other people write in your universe, that's a pretty flattering and amazing thing to have happen. I can imagine how wonderful. Yes, yes, I'm very excited, and well, we'll see what happens. Maybe it'll be something we'll continue on with. It'll depend on what uh, readers, but I feel like when I give them the finale to the series, and then I can give them something new set in what they've enjoyed so much, that it's as if I'm giving them another present. 
here you go. It's not all over. And when will that be coming out? That comes out next fall. Great. Well, well, good luck with all your many projects, and thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. Well, thank you very much, Rob. I, I'm honored to be on New Books in SF. It's a wonderful site you have, and uh, your podcasts are doing everyone a great service. Thank you. Well, thank you. I, I've been speaking with Julie Cherneda about all things Nebula and all things science fiction, including the Nebula Awards Showcase 2017, which Julie edited. You can find even more interviews on the Science Fiction Channel at newbooksnetwork.com or on iTunes or whatever podcasting service you favor. If you like what you hear, please leave a review. Our theme music is by Michael Aaron. The editor-in-chief of the New Books Network is Marshall Poe, and he is helped out by editor Leanne Wilson. Uh, we're on Twitter at New Books Sci-Fi, also on Facebook at NB Science Fiction. I'm Rob Wolf, author of The Alternate Universe and The Escape, and you can find me on Twitter at Rob Wolf Books or on the web at robwolf.net. Thank you so much for listening.